Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Thank you for joining us. I know it's a difficult time, um, but it's also an amazing time to think about all across our country, across the world, people are joining together online and staying connected. My daughter pointed out that if this were happening even 20 years ago, we wouldn't have the uh, technology and ability uh, to do what we can do today. So we appreciate you being with us. We hope you're doing well. Uh, wish we could hear from each one of you and pray for you individually, but know that we are praying. There's a whole range of opinions about how bad things are going to get, how bad things are. My suggestion is take precautions, but stay focused on what God says. One of the amazing things about the Bible is no matter what the circumstance we face in life, God has something to say about it. And it's interesting, in Acts 28, Paul is taken to Rome, he's arrested, and he's placed under house arrest, kind of at-home quarantine. He has a soldier with him 24 hours a day in chains, but he doesn't know how long it will last, and he doesn't know uh, how it will end. And seeing how he responded to his quarantine gives us some great guidelines ourselves. One of the things he did, because he was stuck there in Rome under house arrest, is he wrote some letters. We have a few of those today. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Have you ever thought about the fact that if Paul hadn't been under house arrest, had been able to travel the way he loved to, maybe he would have never written Philippians. Instead of this turning out to be a bad thing, it was a bad thing for him, but boy, it was a good thing for us. How many hundreds of millions of people have been encouraged by that little book that Paul wrote because he was under house arrest? So whatever you're going through, there's something in here for us. I, uh, I guess before I go too much further, I ought to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Rob Mayen. Um, my uh, wife is sitting right over here, Karen. I think uh, you're seeing a picture of the two of us. I have the advantage, you have to look at me, I get to look at her. So uh, you can see, obviously, I get the better deal there. But we've only been married about four and a half years. Uh, we were both married before. Uh, she and her husband, Craig, were on staff with the Navigators then, and uh, me and my wife, Charlene, were on staff here, actually, at this church. Uh, but with the Navigators as well. In 2011, uh, both of our spouses passed away. And uh, two and a half years or so later, we met. And then about a year after that, we uh, got married. And uh, we've been together ever since. Uh, the truth is, she's much more interesting than me. Uh, she, her parents went to Kenya when she was just starting high school. She went to high school in Kenya at an... Uh, all girls, Kenya, high school. Her parents helped found a Christian university over there that's known throughout Africa. And then she came back, went to university in Southern California. After she graduated, she met uh, this Navigator staff guy that actually I had known years ago, Craig Goldfein. They fell in love, got married, and then they went back to Africa as missionaries. They, they served together in Ghana, West Africa for 10 years, and then they moved to 
uh, uh, Kenya to Nairobi in East Africa to serve with the Navigators another 10 years. Then they moved back to Denver and worked with African immigrants uh, there for about 10 years. After Craig passed away, Karen continued that ministry, uh, meeting with uh, women from all over Africa. This whole network, really fascinating ministry that God's given her, and she continues that. Uh, so if you get a chance, talk to her. If you have to choose between me and he, her, choose her, because she's more interesting. Uh, as I said, we've been here in Albuquerque quite a while, uh, and members of this church for over 10, 20 years. Our kids grew up here. All four were baptized here, uh, were involved in uh, ministries, uh, youth ministries, and so we're very thankful for the way God's used Hoffmantown in the life of our family. As uh, was mentioned earlier, today's what we call Palm Sunday. Uh, it's said, called that because of the calm, uh, palm branches that people use to celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. It's uh, Palm Sunday begins the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. So it was a scary time for him. We see how scary the night before he was crucified when he's praying in the garden. Scary time for his disciples. All the uncertainty. He had told them that he was going to be put to death, which was totally different than what they expected. And in the midst of all of that, we have this incident that's recorded in Luke 19. Actually, it's significant, the entry into Jerusalem, because it's recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew 21, uh, Mark 11, John 12, and then the passage that we're going to look at is in Luke 19, verses 29 through 41. So if you're sitting there with uh, what... Uh, eggs and cinnamon rolls, pull one of your paper napkins over and jot down some of these verses as we go through. Maybe it'll be something that'll be a help to you. Let's read through this passage. It's Luke 19, 29 through 41. It says, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you'll find a coat, colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead found it just as he had told them. Significant there. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And apparently, the owners, maybe a husband and wife, just immediately released the colt, gave it to him. Because it says in verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So there was a mixed crowd, people that were just there because of Passover, hundreds of thousands probably, and then his disciples who were there from Galilee and all over Judea, hundreds of them. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Now some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it. 
and said, If you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Man, there's a lot for us to look at there. We're not going to take a real detailed, chronological, uh, analytical look at the passage. We're going to look at it a little more devotionally. One of the things that's interesting is you look at these four accounts. What did I say? Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12. Is that Luke's uh, account is by far the longest. 13 verses. And what's interesting is, even more, is in Luke's account, nearly half of the account has to do with Jesus getting the donkey that he would ride into Jerusalem. Six of the 13 verses are about that. Talks about how he sent two disciples into probably either, well, into either Bethphage or Bethany. We don't know much about the first town. In fact, the first village is only mentioned in these accounts. But Bethany we know more about. That's where Lazarus, Mary and Martha lived. Jesus was there in Luke 11, uh, or in Luke 10, in John 11. Simon the leper, a guy who came to faith and was healed, hear about Jesus spending time with him. So there were a number of believers, and it's just possible that when these two disciples were sent and went in, if they went into Bethany, they bumped into somebody who had heard uh, about Jesus. But all they said when they went to get the colt was, the Lord needs it. What are some lessons we learn there? I, I think just from that beginning, what it tells us about Jesus and what he knows. I like how it says when they went there, those who were sent ahead found it just as he had told them. Jesus is just as present right now in our future as he is in our present. And if we'll do what the disciples did, and that's listen to what he says, we'll find things play out just as he told us. We see the obedience of the disciples and how they were willing to trust Jesus, do what he said, go where he said to go, say what he told them to say, even though it really didn't make any sense to them. Sometimes when we read the Bible, it's like that, isn't it? It doesn't matter whether or not it makes sense to us. My wife Karen's husband died suddenly of liver failure due to repeated illnesses he had experienced in, uh, at, while he was in Africa. My wife Charlene died of colon cancer. Um, we had about 16 months. It was seen very quick. But I can remember one of the things uh, Charlene and I would say to each other is, one, what's happening to us is a surprise to us but it's no surprise to Jesus. The second thing we would say, and we said this repeatedly, is it doesn't matter so much if what's happening makes sense to us as long as it makes sense to him. That's the lesson the disciples learned here. Boy, it's a lesson we can learn in the crisis we're facing today. I told you I wanted to just share a few devotional thoughts. I'm going to give you uh, five quick thoughts. Not going to spend a lot of time on them. They're all going to start with the letter H, which makes it easier for me to uh, remember them. And they're all embedded in this passage, illustrated in the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. The first one is from this verse, verse 34, the Lord needs it. 
it's interesting, again, I'm just challenged by the fact that the owners didn't question, argue, they just handed over the donkey. And it was, I started thinking about that, I think of how often in the Bible we see people asked to just give what they have and God used it. A really famous example is Moses, isn't it? Because in Exodus 4.2, when Moses is having this long conversation with, Jesus, or with uh, the Lord there, it says, uh, finally the Lord says, what is that in your hand? And of course, what, is, uh, what was in his hand was a shepherd's staff. Couldn't be any more ordinary. Uh, Israelites, people all over the Middle East had them. And then, but what does God do? God takes that staff, blesses it, and works through in amazing ways in Moses' life. In fact, Exodus 4, he says, what's that in your hand? And basically, Moses says, that's my staff. In Acts 4.20, it's called the staff of God. And when Moses stands before Pharaoh, God uses, and you can go back and look in the passage, God uses that staff to perform many of the miracles that occur of the ten plagues. And then when they skip before the Red Sea, it's Moses using the staff, God using the staff to part the Red Sea. And later, to strike a rock to provide water. I love that question, what's in your hand? We see it all through the Bible. With Moses, it was his staff. With David, it was his sling, right? In the New Testament, it was the boy's lunch, five loaves, two fish, that when he gave it to Jesus, Jesus fed more than 5,000 people in John 6. John 2, when Jesus turned the water into wine, it was the servant's who had the water pot, pots with just ordinary water. But they brought it to Jesus. Jesus blessed it. Suddenly it was something amazing. We see all, this example in all kinds of people. One of my favorite people in the Bible is Luke. And I, I like Luke because he wasn't an apostle. He was discipled by the apostle Paul. Um, he was a physician, an educated man. And, and uh, we don't have any message any sermon, any information about any kind of public ministry that Luke had. All we have is that he traveled with Paul. It was a huge help and encouragement to him. The other thing we have at the beginning of the gospel that bears his name is we know that he had a heart for a person he knew, a friend named Theophilus. He wanted to help Theophilus come to faith and then grow in his faith in Jesus so he wrote the book that we know as the Gospel of Luke. And then after he wrote that, a little while later, he wrote another book, Luke Part 2, which we call the Book of Acts. Now, when Luke wrote his Gospel under the inspiration of God, all he was trying to do was help one person. What is that in your hand? How many people has God used? I argue back and forth with myself on my favorite gospel, but I come back to Luke a lot. Hundreds of millions of people have been blessed because Luke didn't try to be Paul. He just took what he had, handed it over to the Lord. Just like maybe this couple did with their donkey. I, uh, faith in the face of fear, 
we're talking about that. Faith in the face of fear means focusing on God, what God wants to say to you, what God wants to do through you right now. So ask that question, what's in your hand? Uh, if you live here in Albuquerque, you've probably heard of Calvary Chapel. Skip and Linya Heisick were living in Southern California. They got married in uh, 1981. In 1982, uh, Skip and Linya moved to Albuquerque and they decided to, he was working in radiology and they decided to start a Bible study in their home. They started this little Bible study in 1982. By 1989, that Bible study had become a church that was considering uh, considered one of the fastest growing churches in America. And today, Calvary of Albuquerque, where my son-in-law Austin works, uh, serves about 15,000 people every weekend. What is that in your hand? I don't know if you can see this. This is a, a little wooden base with three crosses on it. It was given to me by my brother-in-law, Gordon, Gordon and Becky Lotion. Uh, Gordon uh, worked for a paving company and then they have a small farm and, uh, but they love horses and they've tried to reach out to people that are kind of horsey people uh, that don't know the Lord, they're connecting them with that. But he got this idea from all these horseshoe nails that were around from shoeing the horses and he started making uh, little crosses generally singular crosses that people could carry, wear inside their shirt. And he started giving them away to people. Uh, he lives in a small town in Oregon, and he just did it as a way to talk about Jesus and help them think about Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, after a while, after he'd given away maybe a hundred or so, people started coming to him and asking him if they could have one of these crosses. And then they started writing letters about how God had used the crosses. They shared it with others. I um, texted my sister-in-law on Wednesday, I think. And as of this week, my brother-in-law, Gordon, has given out 3,891 of these crosses. That not just in Oregon, but all over the U.S., here in New Mexico, of course. Then in Cambodia, Nepal, Mexico, China, countries all over the world. And God's used those crosses, even non-Christians wanting them, to remind them of Jesus and why he died for us so that we could be right with him. What is that in your hand? God can use you right where you are just the way you are if you ask him and if you let him. So that's kind of our app on that, how to pray. And boy, we could go on. You're never too old. Moses was 80 when he led the people out of Israel. Apostle John was in his 80s when he wrote his gospel. Hand it to the Lord. The Lord needs it. Second principle, humble like the Lord. We need to humble ourselves in... in um, Verse 35, it says they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. 500 years before Jesus was born, God inspired Zechariah in the Old Testament to record this prophecy. And um, though it's only partially quoted in Luke 19, it's quoted in more detail in John 12 and Matthew 21. Zechariah 9.9 9, uh, 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
In other words, people of Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there are different uh, implications of him uh, riding on a donkey. But the biggest one that's highlighted in the prophecy is the humility of Jesus in doing this. Contrast that with Roman conquerors, generals, emperors, white horses, chariots, legions of people, all kinds of wealth. And here comes Jesus on a donkey that he doesn't even own with nothing but the clothes on his back, humble, mounted on a donkey. <laughs> I mentioned Skip Heitzig. Skip Heitzig did a, um, a Palm Sunday message a few years ago, and he called it the world's happiest donkey. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right, huh? The world's happiest donkey. But Jesus wants us to be, have that same humility Chuck Swindoll, you may have heard of him. Chuck Swindoll said, humility is neither understood nor admired by most people in Western culture. We like proud, we, uh, we like self-promotion. Maybe the selfie is the prototypical characteristic of our culture. Someone said that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is simply thinking of yourself less. Jesus, on that colt, going into Jerusalem, wasn't going because there was any good news ahead of it for him. He knew a cross lay in his future. But he was doing it because it was what was important to his father and it, what was, need, it was what was needed by us. That's humility. Not thinking always about ourselves. Thinking about others. Randy Elkhorn said, uh, humility isn't pretending we're unworthy because it's spiritual. It's recognizing we're unworthy because it's true. And I like the fact, uh, I mentioned Swindoll before. Swindoll said, we're never commanded by God in the Bible to look humble. You know that? Humility doesn't have to do with the house you own, the car you drive, the clothes you wear. It's we're never commanded to look humble. We're commanded to be humble. One of the most important passages, again, pull that napkin over, write this on your napkin as you've got a mount, put the um, cinnamon roll in your mouth, write this. You know, Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, he says, do nothing from selfishness or pride, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Another version says, in your lives you must think and act just like Jesus. So four quick ways we can do that. You can see them on the screen. Humble leaders, what do we see from Jesus in his life? Humble leaders, humble people, they do four things. One, they help others. Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve. Secondly, they hear people. Humble people are good listeners. A lot of times, I'm focusing on the help I need rather than the help God wants me to give. I focus on what I have to say rather than listening to the other person. 
Humble people hear others. Humble people honor other people. They treat them with respect, whether they agree with them or not. And they look for ways to affirm and appreciate them. My wife is really good at that. And when we travel uh, some overseas now, we've been invited on some trips uh, over the last, actually, since, what was it, just a month or so after we got married, our first trip. And one of the things uh, I see over and over with her is her ability to appreciate people, regardless of the situation. The other thing, just as an aside, is I've learned only to share positive stories about my wife. Otherwise, I learn a whole new level of social distancing afterward. I'm trying to avoid that today. So we want to make sure we honor people and appreciate people. Man, thanking people for their hard work. Thanking people for their service. Boy, we're quick to criticize, quick to complain. That's a mark of a proud person. A humble person appreciates. And then the last age they're under humble people is humble people hold their temper, don't they? Jesus is incredibly patient with us. He wants us to be patient with others. Faith in the face of fear means don't make this crisis about you. Make it about how you can serve God, serve the people around you with whatever it is that's in your hand. Number three, heed what the Lord says. So I used an old verse here, uh, or an old word here, heed. I like the word heed. Uh, one, it starts with an H, which I needed. But the other is, we don't have a, a kind of a modern word that means heed. Heed is the idea of listening to what is said and putting it into practice. It's more than hearing. It's heed, when you heed, you listen and put it into practice. And that's what we see that God wants us to do with the words of Jesus. I found a phrase in Matthew and John. You know, I told you we've got these four accounts of the entry. And it's like four eyewitnesses. People say, well, the stories are different. That's a contradiction. No, you never expect eyewitnesses to have the exact same story. Because they see different things. That adds credibility. It didn't, doesn't diminish credibility to the gospel accounts. And one of the things that uh, Matthew and Matthew 21 and John and John 12 add is the statement, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I've read that the command, do not fear, or variations like fear not or do not be afraid, is the most frequently repeated command in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? The words fear and afraid and synonyms are used over 500 times. Jesus has so much to say about our fear. It's interesting, the very first time fear is recorded is in John 3 verse 10, right after Adam and Eve had uh, eaten the fruit from the tree. In other words, they had disobeyed God. And it says they hid from the Lord. And when the Lord asked them why they were hiding, he's, uh, Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Have you ever thought about the fact for the first time in his life, Adam experienced fear? It's one of the consequences of sin. The further we are from Jesus, the more our fears tend to overwhelm us. Ann Landers, some of you that are older remember, she wrote this advice column. It was in a thousand 
newspapers across the U.S. And she would receive over 10,000 letters a week. She was asked one time, what was the most uh, common problem she was asked to deal with? And she said, without a doubt, it's fear. Fear. So much we can think about there. The Bible has so many great verses about fear. I like Isaiah 41 verse 10. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up by my victorious right hand. Another one I really like is Psalm 34 verse 4. Psalm 34 verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. And I I thought, I wrote down a little note that only Jesus can deliver us from all our fears. Whatever it is, well, we can get it there. Now, on your uh, screen, I can't see it, but you should be able to see it, is you should be able to see um, next to do not fear, and maybe back up to that screen, next to do not fear, there's a little website that says uh, www.navigators, there you go, www.navigatorsabq.org. If you'll go to that website, you'll see uh, a place to click right front and center. Click on verses about fear. And we want to send you uh, this little page uh, that lists, what, 12 or 15 of my favorite verses on this subject. So I hope you'll do that. I hope you'll click on that website, go to that, just click, download that list of verses, read over all the great things. And in this kind of crisis time, Let's listen to more to what God says in faith rather than listening to our fears. Now what's number four? Number four is hosannas to the Lord. John 12, 13 says they took palm branches out. They went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But I like uh, verse 37 in Luke 19, the passage we read. The whole crowd of disciples, so there are all kinds of people, but some of them are followers of Jesus, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. In John 12, 17, the John 12 account, it says, the crowd uh, that uh, was with him when he raised Lazarus from the dead continued to spread the word. Have you ever thought about the fact in the first century, every person who heard about Jesus heard about him by word of mouth? No newspaper, no phone, no media. But God used people just spreading the word by word of mouth to change, well, to change the direction of human history, right? They began, disciples began to joyfully pray the Lord. I put down two things there, show joy, share Jesus. Two simple apps. What do we want to focus on uh, during this crisis? We want to show joy, share Jesus. Someone said that happiness has to do with our happenings. Hard to be happy when there's illness, when there's the economic impact, the social impact. We can't be happy, but we can be joyful. Happiness has to do with our happenings, what's going on around us. Joy has to do with Jesus and what's going on deep inside us. In James 1, 2, and 3, uh, this is the Passion New Testament, kind of a new translation. 
says, my fellow believers, when it seems as though you're facing nothing but difficulties, see it as an invaluable opportunity to experience the greatest joy you can. For you know that when your faith is tested, it stirs up God's power within you to endure all things. Show joy, share Jesus. Man, a lot to think about there, but let's save some. Then number five is heartache like the Lord. Only Luke records verse 41 out of this. And maybe it meant a lot to Luke because he came to faith later. He wasn't a Jew, he was a Gentile. But it says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The Bible only records two times when Jesus wept. He may have wept many other times. Only two recorded in the Gospels. The first is at the tomb of Lazarus when he's with Mary and Martha before he raises Lazarus from the dead. But the second is here. And these tears reflect the heart of the Father and show how deeply Jesus cares about those who don't know him. If you're a follower of Christ, then the challenge for you is to make sure that we care as deeply for those who don't know Christ as Christ cares. If you don't know Christ, then that's his word to you, that he weeps, that he longs for a, a reconciliation with you, for us to come to him, to thank him for what he did on Easter weekend, dying for our sins, uh, to ask him to come into our lives. Paul put it this way. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Does our heart ache with the things that ache the heart of God? Probably most of you have heard of World, World Vision. It's a charitable organization that works all over the world, Christian organization. One of the founders, Bob Pierce, wrote in the front of his Bible these words. He wrote, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. People without a relationship with Jesus, that breaks the heart of God. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, even his disciples, their hope was that he would change the government, that he would overthrow the Romans and rule in their place. But when uh, on Palm Sunday, Jesus didn't come to overthrow governments or to change governments. He came to change us. He didn't come to rule over nations. He came to rule in our hearts. And that's what we focus on. Faith in the face of fear. Someone said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this passage uh, Lord Jesus, we think of how this is the beginning of an incredibly difficult week for you. And you know that at the end, there's a cross, there's a tomb, but there's a resurrection as well. And Father, I pray that you would help us to face our fears in this time of crisis with the faith in what you've promised. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.